And let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for uh, the sowing and the harvest and the way that you are growing up in the world, a crop for eternal life. And we do pray, Lord, that we might see uh, some harvest in our time and place ourselves. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today I want to talk about the promise of Christian mission. Jesus was a missionary. He wanted to harvest a crop for eternal life. That is, he wanted to convert people. He wanted to have them change their minds, change their allegiance, change their direction in life. This was food and drink to him. To see people accept his message and answer his call. Jesus was not always an obvious or instant success. John's Gospel warns at the outset in chapter 1 that he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Uh, Two weeks ago, the passage we had from John's Gospel said he testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Next week's passage, Jesus en route to Galilee, John comments, Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honour in his own country. Jesus, uh, it seems, well, John warns us that Jesus may appear to be a failed missionary, someone who had a message, but nobody wanted to hear it. Nobody believed it. Nobody listened. But John 4 is a chapter where Jesus' missionary work is a resounding success. And a resounding success in a very unexpected place, in Samaria. Uh, last week's passage from the beginning of John 4, John made the comment, for those of you who don't know, that Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Um, Samaritans thought that Jews were religiously corrupt, they had the wrong scriptures and they read them wrongly. And the sentiment was mutual. The Jews thought the Samaritans were religiously corrupt. They had the wrong scriptures and they read them wrongly. And so there was a fair degree of mutual excommunication, if you like, and hostility. And that Samaritans could confess of Jesus the Jew, this man really is the saviour of the world. That is a truly remarkable state of affairs. And so let's today consider this harvest of souls and reflect on what it means, perhaps, for us. Firstly, I want to talk about the action. Now, the action is well underway in this story, and if you were here last week, you may recall that Jesus is travelling north to Galilee from Judea, and he's travelling through Samaria, this kind of place full of Samaritans, which the Jews did not associate with. The disciples leave him at a well and go into town for food, and Jesus strikes up a conversation with a woman who had come to draw water. And there are two key points in this conversation. The first is that Jesus offers her living water. He says of this gift of living water that he offers to this woman, the water I give will become in you a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus is talking about giving this woman the gift of communion with God through himself and through his Holy Spirit. There's the first important note of that conversation. The second one, though, is that Jesus displays a striking knowledge of this woman's life. 
In chapter 4, verse 18, we didn't have it in our reading, but we had it last week. Jesus says to her, you had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. And the effect of Jesus' knowledge on the woman is pretty electric. This insight into her situation that Jesus displays for no apparently human, out of no apparently human capacities, this is... This is deep. Immediately she says, Sir, I see you are a prophet. How else could you know these things about me? And when her conversation with Jesus is interrupted, she leaves her water jar behind at the well because she's forgotten all about her errand coming to get water. She's got something else on her mind. Something else is consuming her purpose. And she goes to her town and she says, Come, see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the Messiah? There is obviously something compelling about this woman's invitation to her townsfolk, her fellow townspeople, and her description of her encounter with Jesus because, um, you know, it gets the townspeople up out of their houses and leaving the town to see Jesus. It may well be that Jesus said more to her than just the bare words of chapter 4, verse 18, that she said more to the townsfolk than the bare words of verse 29. But whatever was said, the townsfolk are struck by her story, her testimony to Jesus, and the way she's telling it. And they head out across the fields to the well, following the woman to meet this man. As that's happening, Jesus, too, is feasting on this turn of events. He's not thinking of water from the well anymore or even the food that the disciples have brought from the town. He is exhilarated by the encounter he's had with the woman and the one that he's about to have when the townsfolk arrive. This, you see, is what he's all about. My food, he says, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And that's what I'm doing and I'm into it. And today, this day in Samaria, at this well, it's an unusual day because sowing and reaping are going to happen together. Usually there is a long process, as we all know, when you sow and the seed germinates and it grows to maturity and it produces its own fruit and then the harvest comes. And so there's a gap between sowing and harvest. And so the saying goes, four months more and then the harvest, we have to wait. But today, in Samaria, it's different. Look at the fields, says Jesus. They are ripe for harvest right now. And perhaps it is the case that Jesus is literally pointing to those actual fields and saying, look at these fields. And what's in those fields? The townspeople, the Samaritans, coming across the fields from the town to the well to meet Jesus. And so when Jesus says, look at the fields that are ripe for harvest, he's pointing to the people in the fields, perhaps. Speculative, but plausible. Today there will be, whatever the case, no long process in this missionary work of sowing and waiting. Today in Samaria, Jesus says, even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. This day in Samaria, the disciples are caught up in an instant harvest that they did not sow. 
Jesus says, I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labour. And so for two days in Samaria, there is this great conversion, a great giving of allegiance to Jesus. Verses 41 and following, because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the one, we are no longer believed just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. Now this is a rare moment of uncomplicated missionary success. And it's striking for being amongst Samaritans. This gives us perhaps a foretaste that the disciples will have success later in preaching in Samaria. And indeed, not just to Samaritans, but to other non-Jewish peoples, the Gentiles across the world. And so if you read on the book of Acts, Acts 8, the disciples go and reap a harvest in Samaria. In Acts 10 and following, it's the story of the gospel going out beyond the Jewish world to all nations. And this chapter, chapter 4 of John's gospel, gives a little foretaste of that missionary success. It does contrast with Jesus' frequent experience, uh, as we will see in John as we read on it, being met with suspicion or disbelief, misunderstanding and hostility, and only perhaps a smattering of belief and allegiance. So there's the action in the second half of John 4. What will we make of it? Let me offer a couple of reflections. The first is this, that mission can be amazingly successful. And we all see the census data. People are not pouring into our churches. Too many seem flowing steadily, actually, in the opposite direction, out. And people are probably not often saying to you, tell me about this Jesus fellow who you know and worship. You know, I'm, I'm really quite interested in that. Uh, we perhaps fear more often that if we were to raise the subject, people might say, don't push your foolish religion onto me. This is the kind of climate we inhabit. But things can be and are different. There are times and places where amazing fruits have come from mission and in short order. A great and rather sudden swelling of the ranks of believers. This is quite possible with God's help. Uh, a swelling of believers that can, can gain momentum indeed and move beyond just being local to being community-wide or even global. Famous examples might include... Uh, I never got to one of Billy Graham's rallies, but Billy Graham's rallies over six decades, he preached around the world. His lifetime audience, including his radio and television audience, was in the billions. And it is said that over three million people responded to the invitation to accept Christ as their saviour through Billy Graham's ministry. It was a remarkable ministry in a remarkable uh, time and place around the world in the middle of the 20th century. There is, though, a more recent and perhaps more local example that I just want to tell the story of. It's not West Australian, but it is Australian. It's the story of Mikey Lynch, a guy I happen to know, um, not well, but a bit. He was at school at Scotch in Melbourne in the 1990s and, you know, kind of enlightened rebel schoolboy, reading philosophy, listening to grunge music and asking questions like, what's the point? Why be good? Why get good marks? Why fit in? And uh, he found that most people didn't have much answers to these questions. His family moved to Tasmania. 
He fell out with his parents and left home and hung out in Melbourne with an alternative crowd. He returned to Tasmania before his mum died of cancer. And here are his words describing what happened after that. He says, not long afterwards, one of the most dedicated atheists I knew had a conversion experience while on acid at a rave and now believed there was a God. It's a first step in what would turn into a Christian revival among Lynch and his friends. The converted atheists began critiquing the cynicism of their 1990s subculture and Lynch became very intrigued. What eventually interested him enough to attend a Bible study group on Romans with his ex-atheist friend in the home of a Christian philosophy lecturer remains a kind of mystery. Obviously, said Lynch, the friendship contact was a big thing. I think, strangely enough, the conservative church thing wasn't a put-off. For Lynch, preaching by David Jones and Peter Woodcock at St John's Presbyterian Church in Hobart stands out as the clincher that moved him to put his faith in Christ. They preached long, passionate, culturally engaged sermons, he says, and the word of God captured him, and not just him, his friends as well. In the months that followed, around 30 of Lynch's friends became Christians. There were, he recalls, these lineups for baptism, and Lynch joined the line. He ended up pastoring at a very young age a church that was planted out of that micro-revival, which was a pretty crazy ride. But he says, by God's kindness, the bunch of people that we were was extraordinary in terms of self-discipline, capacity and motivation. While we were doing our degrees, we were also motivating ourselves to study theology, read, mentor, write curriculums. Lynch says people were becoming Christians Yet there were new stresses and demands that he had not expected. He reflects on that quite extraordinary time in this way. As a first generation of converts in any revival, in this case a a mini micro revival thing, you do things which are extraordinary but which are unreasonable to expect of a normal Christian in a normal season. Now I tell this story just to show that even in contemplating contemporary Australia, such things can happen. Not just in 18th century England, not just in 20th century East Africa, but even in a suburban Australian city within the last 30 or 40 years. And if the Lord was so minded, it could happen here too. Mission can be amazingly and unexpectedly fruitful. And there's nothing wrong then with praying for a harvest right where we are, here and now. There's my first reflection. Second reflection is this. Uh, Two things are often present when mission goes well. One is somebody with a testimony about their encounter with Christ. The Samaritan woman's encounter with Jesus made her a powerful part of the conversion of these Samaritans. We read in verse 39, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. They didn't even need to hear Jesus firsthand. They were convinced by what they heard and saw in the woman they knew. She was struck. She was changed, convinced and convincing. And we might recall Mikey Lynch's converted atheist friend who drew him into considering Jesus. And the other thing that is present often when mission goes well is a missionary whose food is to do the will and the work of God. Now, in this day, Jesus was the missionary par excellence, the unsurpassable missionary. No one was or is more dedicated to doing the will and work of the Father than Christ 
a beloved son. But we can aspire to follow Christ's example. And he gave his disciples this commission. Go and make disciples of every nation. And he promised, I am with you always. So, do you have a testimony about your encounter with Christ? About what Christ has done in you? This can be powerful to touch others, even when your story is perhaps not as dramatic as some of the others you might have heard. That doesn't matter. Just the fact that you've been touched and changed can touch and change others. Another question is, do you have an appetite for the will and work of God? Because if you have, that's food and drink to you. If you are switched on by it, that'll get you out in the field to sow, and if God gives a harvest, to reap. Now, all of this, you know, the temptation is, if, if we want to see this, to kind of find ways to help it along, to force it, to fake it, to pump it up, and we should resist that temptation entirely. It is God's work. He is the one who is the Lord of the harvest. He brings the growth and the ripeness where he pleases and when he pleases. It's not our place to kind of generate fruitfulness, but we can pray for it. We can work in the sowing and the harvesting and we can rejoice in it, whether the harvest is large or small. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the success of the gospel of Jesus amongst the Samaritan people in that time when Jesus met the woman at the well and the townspeople came out and spent time with him. We thank you for all the ways in which the harvest has been fruitful over so many centuries. And we do pray, Lord, that you would continue to bring a fruitful harvest and draw us into the work of that sowing and reaping that we might know it and rejoice in it. Give us, Lord, this blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.